Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. If you know me, you know how obsessed I am with live performance. To me, nothing replaces being in a theater and the lights going down and the orchestra starts to play and that first moment of magic. And I know the way I feel about theater, some people feel about sports or opera or dance or comedy or food. And what if there was a place that you could go and find out which live events are going on near you that night, and then for a discount price, you can get off your couch, put down that clicker, and experience the magic that is live performance. Well, there is a place, goldstar.com. You just go to that website, you type in your city, and every amazing live event will be listed at discount prices. Theater, dance, comedy, film, food, concerts, sports, no more staying home. You are going to go out and build memories and experiences that expand your mind and heart through live performance with goldstar.com. Goldstar is in 26 cities around the country with over 8 million members already signed up to find out what event is going on near you. So go to goldstar.com. Get out of your house and build memories that are magic for you and your family. Expand your mind, expand your hearts. Go see live performance by using goldstar.com. Tell them Alana sent you. Hey, I heard you need an inspiration. He's Alana and friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day. Every little thing's gonna be a-okay. Hey everyone, new episodes of Little Known Facts drop every Monday and you can find them on your favorite podcast provider. Also, if you go to the website, littleknownfactspodcast.com, you'll find behind the scenes photos, videos, and interviews, and lots more on the gallery page. And if you are loving these intimate, candid conversations with all the artists who come on the show, please head over to the contributions page. I depend on these donations to continue to bring you these interviews every week. So if you love the show, please donate. Little known fact about my guest today, he's probably done about 20 Broadway musicals, but it wasn't until he was starring in the seventh that he really figured out how to sing. Find out more about Mark Kudish on this episode of Little Known Facts. A-okay. everyone. My guest today is the three-time Tony-nominated Drama Desk award-winning actor Mark Kudish. Mark recently starred in Girl from the North Country at the Public Theater. His many Broadway credits include Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, Beauty and the Beast, The Scarlet Pimpernel, 
High Society, The Wild Party, Bells Are Ringing, Thoroughly Modern Millie, Assassins, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, The Apple Tree, Nine to Five, Hand to God, and Finding Neverland. He is starring on season two of the new Amazon series, The Tick. He recurs as Dr. Gus on the Showtime series, Billions. He will also be seen in the Mindy Kaling film, Late Night. Yeah. Uh, he's married to the beautiful dancer and choreographer Shannon Lewis. Little known fact that I found out while researching my old friend Mark that we were both born in Hackensack, New Jersey. Really? Random. <laughs> I don't remember you. I think a lot of people were born in Hackensack. A lot of people who have gone on to do great creative things. Hackensack, New Jersey. Mark Kudish, welcome, my dear, dear friend. Hi. It's been way too long. Thank it's you for all... coming in. Yeah, right. If this is what it took. Yeah, I know, but isn't it funny that you literally like, oh my God, my life just flashed before my eyes because it's literally been that length of time that we've actually like just sort of seen each other on a daily basis. Yeah. I mean, we met originally in 99 because you Was were... it 99? I was even thinking, was it 98 or 99? Well, maybe 98. There was like a pre-Broadway run of You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, right. and then Broadway, and you were dating Kristen Chenoweth. Uh, and so we got to see each other a fair amount. In fact, I have many photographs of you from backstage you see, that's in funny. various T-shirts. Well, you're gonna have to send me some of those because I don't, I don't, I don't have any of that stuff. I'm really sorry. To... Yeah, well, it's a I lifetime ago, right? But you know, it was sort of like people forget. I was just having this conversation with someone the other day. Uh, I was having it with one of my young millennial friends. Uh, the idea of the fact that, like, you know, we didn't have the social media thing. We didn't right. have the phones that took the no. pictures. None of these photos are on a cloud of right. any kind. So, like, there's so much of that stuff that when I see the random photos shoot through or shoot by from that period of time, yeah. you know, even particularly, I just want to say, like, the 90s on a whole. Yeah. It's just like, grab it, because I don't even know where it came from. Yeah. It came from my, you know camera role that I then developed the film at CVS right. or some, or maybe even back then sent it into Kodak. Not sure. Um, I feel like I look very much like Stroh today, Susan Stroman with my baseball cap, but don't be nervous. There's not going to be any choreography. That's okay. I've done enough of that for Stroh. Yeah. Um, and she's a part of that time too. Just all of those yeah. people who, um, were at the beginning and, uh, and you, I don't know. You're just a part of the the story, the narrative, the 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 kind of like ticker tape if you picture Wall Street and like that stock report that goes by. Mm. But then I keep getting to see you in amazing things. Most recently in Girl from the North Country, yeah. and we were talking about that before yeah. we I hit record, which right. is the thing that was so extraordinary about this Bob Dylan musical for people who didn't get to see it is. Um, how many songs I knew and how many songs I did right. not know. Right. Uh, there were some rare gems that were unearthed yeah. for people like me who were not aficionados of his well, work. Well, I think a part of it is a lot of the songs are actually more recent than past. I think mm. people forget, you know, or when you think of Bob Dylan, you think really of sort of when he was down in Greenwich Village and he was, you know, writing in that modern folk movement and we think of him in that young form, but we forget in the 70s and even into the 80s, late 80s, he was still, I mean, now. So prolific. He's writing and so a lot of the songs that are in the show are from his more modern period of writing, but because of the way everything is orchestrated, it's very hard to tell what period he wrote it in, which yeah. is obviously purposefully. Yeah. You know, Girl from the North Country takes place in uh, 1934 in uh, Duluth, Minnesota, so it's in the Depression era. And I have to, 
uh, also say, I mean, it's not a musical. It right. will be categorized as a musical yeah. when we move. Yeah. Um, but it's really a play with music, play with pre-existing music by Bob Dylan. But the play is by Connor McPherson. Right. And uh, the conceit is by Connor McPherson, and the weaving of it is Connor. And um, I should also say Simon Hale, who orchestrated this stuff mm, with with Connor, so by the way, because yeah. Connor is an amazing musician. And it's this incredible. But I also like. There's no way to define it, right? Like it's not a definable piece of theater, in my opinion. It's just a really good piece of but theater. But that's what's exciting. Like I saw Oklahoma last night. There's just things. There's ways in which people are reinventing the form. Yes. And I'm all for not categorizing something. Yeah. It will have a cast recording. Yep. It will live as a musical. People will, if they try to find it, that's that's how people who don't get to see it in person will discover it. Sure. Which is fine by me. I mean, all of those conversations are conversations for like coffee and drinks afterwards, yeah. right? Because they really don't have any really – there's no real practical purpose to those conversations. And, you know, I've had my foot in uh, plays. I've had my foot in musicals. I've had my foot in opera. So – and I don't categorize it and I treat it all the same. So Performance. Yeah. Or it's just a play. It's yeah. just a play. And sometimes you sing in the play and sometimes you don't. And truth is there's always a musical form. There's a cadence to everything. If you don't think that, you know uh, – You mean the rhythm of, of – the rhythm of everything. Shakespeare, yeah. iambic pentameter. There was a musicality to that. I yeah. mean when you look at the play – American playwrights like Eugene O'Neill or Tennessee Williams. Williams, you know, when they wrote, they actually had underscoring in all of their plays. So music is just a look. Music is the thread that ties us all together anyway, right? I mean, it's literally the thing that we can all connect to, whether we even understand the language of it mm. or not. If yeah. someone's singing in Italian, that doesn't mean you don't connect. Right. So music is a form of expression that kicks us right in the heart. And it's just a great way to create a sonic environment for a play to exist. And that's everything to me. Did Dylan, was he around? Did he come? Did you meet him? What's his relationship to it? His relationship was, this is how it all began. Um, Dylan's people reached out to Connor and because he was a fan of Connor's plays wow. and said, hey, Connor, um, Bob would be really interested in you doing a piece, you know, with his Music. And I think Connor's initial reaction was, nah, I don't know about that. I really don't know if it's something that I do. I really I've never done anything musical before that way. And they were like, look, 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 let's just let us send you his stuff. And so literally they sent like, you know, because Connor's truck in, pulls up. Well, no, uh, Connor's in Dublin. So they yeah. had to FedEx this stuff, right? So they FedExed him all of this material, not just digitally, but we're talking vinyl stuff that's not available digitally. They said, here, take it all, take it all. And then he's like, well, you know, like how much of this can I use? And they said, everything, just wow. do whatever the hell you want. And I'd never heard of that before. So Connor had free reign to use any and all of Dylan's music. And by researching Dylan and listening to all of the music, he came up with the construct uh -huh. of the play that you saw. Right. Boarding house, 1930s. And just these people that are wandering in the depression yeah. that, you know, regardless of where they're from in the country or what their social status or economic status has been, that's the thing about the depression. It kicked everyone in the nuts and everyone was brought down to level one and every day was about survival, you know. I just want to tell listeners, if you haven't seen it yet, if you think of Grapes of Wrath or just certain worlds where people are kind of suddenly lost everything that they had, yeah. but not in a big city. 
in a very rural or or well Bob's you know, birthplace yeah. and that's really why he wanted to put it there in Duluth because uh-huh. that's where Dylan is from. So cool. Yeah. And he just thought that you know that Midwest was a melting pot in that period of time you know between the past and what the future might be and who these people are and for this brief moment of time that these people are together in this boarding house they essentially become this dysfunctional family but they represent like most aspects of our american identity yeah super timeless in that way right completely yeah well and that's the thing too that i always say that like you know we always talk about what is time in time out of time and like Forgive me for getting esoteric, but, you know, physics. And I always say if there's one thing that's timeless, it's music. Because Mm -hmm. no matter when it was written, when you perform it, because, you know, music must be performed live. When you perform it live, it becomes alive and it becomes present regardless of the period it was written in, right? So, like, that's the beauty of what Bob wrote is that all of these songs, whether you know them or not, just come alive in the moment and they're there and they're present. And, you know, I mean, regardless of technology, regardless of where we are with society and the ideologies of society, um, our human condition never changes. And that's, I think, the thing that we constantly battle with, right? As human beings, that's why we love Shakespeare because he really, you know, went, see, greed, you know, mm-hmm. vanity, jealousy. Like those right. are basic traits Ambition, that we carry it, yeah. no matter what. Yeah. And we'll always have them. Love. Yeah. Loss. Grief. Um, You know, I I mean, these are things that tie us together. And that's what I love about the play. It's a hard night for the audience to watch. It's very Eugene O'Neill-esque or Arthur Miller-esque or Jack London. I mean, we could go through like the list of sort of iconic American um, composition. But at the same time... It's really, I think, what makes it such a beautiful evening for people is is that we all can connect. The, the great thing about the piece is, is it gives the audience an opportunity to choose how they want to feel about it, mm. which I love. So to answer the original question, beyond him sending the music, he wasn't involved in the like. Oh, creation. sorry about that. No, that's that okay. was a tangent, right? No, but that's the point. I yeah. mean, that's the whole point. He, he was, stayed out of the process. Yeah, he's like, here's my staff. Did he come see it? Yes. Now, here's here's what we just discovered when we were doing it uh, at the public. I, Is it happening again? It's very likely happening again. Little known fact. Well, let's just say it there's. Should. Let's just say that we all have very positive feelings about the fact that things will be happening again come on well i i I would love to give you better scoop than that but i'm just saying possible the energy is very good we're moving forward yeah um i i you know because we were always meant to move even like last season but last season was is this coming season not last nowhere to go this coming season is such a diverse crowded uh season of really cool stuff that's coming in and our show needs a very specific theater, I think. Um, it's a very intimate play. That doesn't mean, you know, intimacy is not about the size of the house, but it is about a certain warmth to the theater. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, I think, was really important to everybody. So if that means patience, right. patience Waiting is worth it. Waiting for the right it. place. Yeah. Right. But so Bob... Bob. My friend Bob. Yeah, my friend Bob. I call him Bobby, but I guess we're a little closer. Raboito. <laughs> Mr. Zimmerman. BD. Um... So I don't know that he saw it in London when they did it on the West End. I do know that he came and he saw us. 
And I think a part of it was convenience of location. He's a very busy guy. He was doing a concert, um, up, you know, at the Beacon. And on one of those nights that he had, he came and he saw our show. Now, they never told us when anyone was coming. Mm -hmm. I mean, we had really cool things happen. We had really cool people in there nonstop. I remember when Paul McCartney was there, when Sting was there, when Bono was there. And it was just literally this revolving wow. door of people coming through. Sure. I mean, we had um, Chief Justice Roberts came. Uh, and, and he came on the day that they made the announcement of that statement that he made about the judiciary and how they were independent and how they were not Republican or Democrat or anything. And at the time – They were their own thing. Well, and here's the thing. You know, like I – I was listening. I'm, I'm a political animal, so I was listening. Weren't, weren't you a poli sci? I was poli sci yeah. major, and I'll always be one. Yeah. But like, I was, you know, in in the dressing rooms, <laughs> always I'd always be, be listening to MSNBC and sure. Fox News and yeah. CNN because I want You're all, all of sides, it. Yeah. Right. And then, like, I remember when all of that came out, and I was just like, we were all like, yes, yes, Chief Justice Roberts, yes, standing for the law. You know, I don't care if you're Democrat or Republican, but let's just be upstanding about it right let's have the conversation like 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 mature people instead of like this bald rhetoric like let's be clear right and then i remember they said so there's somebody here and we want you guys to stay in costume and we're like oh god who know and i don't mean that in a rude way it was wonderful but just you know eventually you just go give us a heads up huh yeah also, you like to shower after your yeah, show. Yeah, I need to shower. I'm OCD. I before, shower before every show and at, after every at the show. Theater. At, at the, the theater. theater. I need to shower. I shower. I shower a lot. I shower like three, four times a day. Mark, fight call? No. I have to do my Well, show. I'll fight call, but then I'm going to shower after that because I'm not – I can't put on clothing when I just feel like, ugh. And then when I can't put on my regular clothing when I just sweat all night long and like, you know, my wife like gives me a lot of – you know, does she like that. that you shower? Or does she give you crap that you're? She still, gives me crap that I do it all the time. Right. No, she just gives me crap. She's like, you, you really like. She just gives me crap all the time because it's like I shower three or four times a day. Right. You know what can I say? Even when Chief Justice Roberts. Yeah, but is then in the he house. showed up that afternoon. That all of that information came out with his family. And it was right before Thanksgiving. So it was sort of like he then had just gone on his holiday with his family and they chose to come and see the show because he's a big Bob Dylan fan. And it was so cool to meet them, especially on that day. And his family, his wife was awesome. His kids were great. I mean, they're like young adults. They're mm -hmm. grown up. And it was so interesting to, to just – especially after seeing that show, which is so very American, written by this Irishman. It took this Irishman to write – one of the most truly American pieces of theater I've ever done. You know, he's got a better perspective, I think. And we forget that, like, I mean, Irish is American, right? German is American. Italian is American. I get tired of people pointing, and I'm like, where do you think you're from, man? We're all immigrants. Mm -hmm. That's what this country is. Mm -hmm. People that immigrated from everywhere else. Yeah. So like – And even if your family happened to have done that hundreds of years ago, they still started someplace else. Everybody. It doesn't matter. And that's the yeah. challenge, you know, as a tangent. That's my challenge when people point a finger at someone. I mean I have friends that are, that are you know, 
Asian American that are like nine to ten generations. I'm only second generation, right? Hackensack. Second generation yeah. Hackensack. But like my grandfather, both sides of my grandparents came from Lithuania or Ukraine. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, I'm I'm You're new. New. And anyone who like points a finger because of the way that someone looks to them, it's like, you know, insanity. You're missing it. Yeah. All right. So yeah. Insanity. Anyway, meeting Roberts that day was really cool. And, and we really all just sort of appreciated not just like the the art of what we were doing, but actually the message of what we were doing. Well, it's really poignant when those worlds collide Bingo. like that. I mean, it's so poignant. And the theater allows us yeah. this crazy career with all of its it's an EKG, you're dead and alive on a daily basis. It's like a crazy arc. But the people that you get to meet, not just artistic heroes, but real heroes from every walk of life, it's like right. an incredible privilege. And when they come backstage, it's awe-inspiring, especially the the, the synergy of that right. specific day. That's nutso. Well, the thing is, look, I mean, and this is why I do it, Right. I mean, why I'm in the theater, why I, I ever chose to want to do this, and it's taken a long time to figure out, but I'm an introvert by nature, so I'm not good in big social situations. I'm good one-on-one, and I'm good with people I know. I'm very mm-hmm. comfortable, and I'm fine in those social situations, but I'm hiding how I really feel. I'm not refueled by that. Right. I actually want to get the hell out of there, you know, but... The theater is the last socially acceptable place to have those politically incorrect conversations. That, that's, Do you mean in the piece? In or anything. Or backstage? Or just in, in anything. the world? At the restaurant? The theater is the last place for us to have complicated conversations within our society. It's the place where we can talk about those challenges that we have in terms of ideologies that are disparate or we talk about economic differences or we talk about bigotries and prejudices that exist and will always exist. And in the theater, you can do that because the minute you walk in the theater, you have this pact of engaging in an event. You know that that's going to happen. That's why you go to the theater. So that's the place to do it. That's why it was originally done. That's why the Greeks stood up and were talking to each other that way and then throughout history. That's what the theater is. That doesn't mean it can't be entertaining. That doesn't mean that it can't be light, but it is the place for us to have those conversations. So as you say, when they collide, that to me is the purest form of theater because we're all trying to – politics is theater. Don't tell me it's not. And now it's reached such a height, you know, and and the question is, and it's the same in my opinion about the theater in New York City. It's just the kind of entertainment we want to give our audience. Who is our audience? Do we want to throw Dunkin' Donuts at them all day long or do we want to give them a meal to chew on? And I feel in many ways that's the same with our our political climate Mm -hmm. right now. Do we want to throw bald rhetoric as an entertainment to the crowds? Are you not entertained? Or do we actually want to get into the, 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 the meat and the nitty and the gritty of what it's going to actually take to make things work? That's a much harder job to do. And I think that there are people that are there for different reasons, just like us. But the way that I see it and the way that I do it, I'm in there for the dialogue. I'm not in there for the applause. I could care less. My favorite performances I've ever given, like in Hand to God, for instance, which was a comedy, but a dark, weird, 
uncomfortable comedy. My favorite moments in the show was when half the audience would laugh and the other half of the audience would shush the audience that was laughing. And the character that I happened to play in that play was just so unsettling for so many people because they just didn't know how to feel. Great, now we've got a, you know, a conversation happening. Anyone can get a laugh in my opinion. I'm sorry, that's just me. You know, and maybe it's I'm Jewish, so I'm genetically funny. But laughter is easy to me. Applause is easy to me because you can manipulate that and you can signal that it's coming. You can indicate to the audience, you know, respond here. But when you're doing a show like Girl um, or even Hand to God where there's no indication of how you're supposed to feel at any given moment, that gives an audience the freedom to actively engage in it. And even if that engagement means standing up and walking out, I prefer that than anyone falling asleep. Mm -hmm. Okay, another tangent. But, you know, that's why I'm in it. So those moments where you get to meet those people like Roberts and you see that they are so wired by what they just saw, you know, it, it, it allows us the opportunity as actors. I don't like to say artists. That, that word kind of bothers me. Tell me why. Because I think that it, I think, not to me, but to a larger, uh, let, let's just say population, the idea of an artist is someone who's just playing all of their lives. Do you know? That it's all fun and that it's all like a game or it's like a hobby and that you've just happened to be making money on this thing where you're just doodling all day long. Mm. People come and see a Broadway show, you know this, and they think, what fun, but they don't realize the effort, the skill, the technique, the, des the discipline. That, why it's hard for me to stand without everything hurting in my body all and, these and, years And the fact later. that we're yes. athletes and that yes. we're really putting ourselves through a lot mm -hmm. um, to do this thing. And so I, I always think of myself and I always say, I'm a business person. My business is this. Mm -hmm. His business is that. But I think all business people have the potential to be artists in whatever that business is. So – to see one person who is, I think, truly trying to excel to something greater than himself, come to see what we did and be truly moved by it. And, you know, like it was so great because you could tell he needed this day. Do you have like other f memories of like that felt like that of people not like, oh, my God, Julie Andrews came back. Also amazing. Yeah. But like other moments like that. Yeah. I, I will say when we were doing Hand to God, you know, this wonderful play about, you know, this small Texas town and um, this small uh, basement in this church where they're, you know, having a puppet ministry, which is a real thing. And people would think that we were making fun or poking fun. But if you're from the South, then, you know, oh, no, that's actually very real. And, you know, it's just about this small group in a puppet ministry and one of the boys, you know, um, may or may not be possessed by the devil and that devil you know, speaks through the puppet on his hand. Mm -hmm. And it sounds very funny and it is, but then it gets into some serious, serious issues of family health and social health and, you know, faith and 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 it was really important to me being the minister the pastor that we weren't making fun of anyone's religion but we were really looking at the idea of what faith is and how sometimes we can abuse our situations 
um, be that a mother to a son or um, a, a central, like, leading figure to his community or, you know, um, these disparate kids who need help from the adults who are failing. And, like, it was really fun. Now, I say all those things, yeah. and those are true about the play. Yes. And it was wildly funny. Yes. But the, the joy of that was I would have friends come back, like, you know, artists like ourselves, right? Performers like ourselves. Celebrity friends that would come back afterwards and literally just look at me and go, holy shit, you know, uh, with such excitement for what they saw because it was so unexpected. I remember Victor Garber literally came to the off-Broadway and, and, and as I was walking out, I didn't know he was there. He just grabbed me and he like shoved me up against the, the, the wall of the theater and he went, Jesus, dude. And it was just so great to By see By the way, people. that's many people's fantasy to have Victor Garber. Well, I love Throw Victor. them against the wall. But it was so exciting to see my friends so excited. Yeah. And like – not know like but just be so excited about seeing a piece of theater that was so unexpected to them and it just gave them faith in what we do and how we can connect to an audience and we can share a message of hope or we can share a message of grief or we can share our humanity with each other mm -hmm. in such a way that is complicated but it still connects and it's exciting and it allows you to go home and think about it for a really long time and I mean I would have rabbis come up and say, that's one of the best parables I've seen. I mean, I had rabbis and ministers and right. pastors, real people yeah. of faith come up and say, I'm going to have my congregation come and see this. And you saw the play, right? Did you see it? Okay. It's, it's NC-17. I mean, to have these people say, I am suggesting this to my ministry or my congregation. They're affected. I mean, yeah. yeah. And then I had... I, I can't even tell you how wonderful it was to have so many people just respond in such different ways. Uh, I don't know. That so to me is cool. at this point, when I read, I mean, 12 Broadway credits, 20 Broadway credits, 1 just, million Broadway credits. Whatever. Uh, <laughs> I mean, whatever. <laughs> well, well, whatever to you, but to someone listening at the beginning of all of this, sure. that is astronomical. That's like you, you're on the moon. And... At this point, are you able to sort of handpick what you want to do? No. So you've just been very fortunate that these things that have come to you have been resonated so deeply for you and others? I don't know how it all works out. I don't know. Everyone's paths are own, which sounds contrived, but it's true. It's actually a fact. It is a fact. You yeah. know that. Look, I didn't. I wasn't a singer. I didn't train to do this, you know. I didn't train to do it at all. By and the then way, when three I three Tony nominations no, but, later for musicals, but, whatever. Right. And I didn't sing when I moved to New York. I was trained dramatically, and even then, I was a poli sci major that changed into a theater major. So it was all new to me when I found it. So I didn't have preconceived notions about it. And when I moved to New York, it was always I was looking at off Broadway, not Broadway, because. I wasn't a star and, and I, I didn't sing, right. so that wasn't going to happen. And I don't know exactly how it happened, but it did. I just never questioned it. I didn't set myself up for failure in terms of having any kind of a pipe dream. I just was doing it in the moment and I was figuring it out. And as I was going, I was just, I just, you know, I, 
I, I did my best not to question myself and, and not to get ahead of myself. And how I ended up doing music theater, I will never know. Um, it was never a goal to be on Broadway, and I've been on Broadway a lot. One million times. And, you know, again, I just never and, – and again and, – and, and, and even throughout all of that, I was trying to figure out why I wanted to do this. You know, I, I, I don't know that I'm the best actor. I, I think I'm a good actor. I think that there are people that love it more than me. They love performance more than me. And I've always recognized that in people. It's not the performance that's interesting to me. But I was always aware that it was the process that I loved more than the performance. And the minute that the show was up and running, I was ready to look for something else to process, you know? Yeah. And then it goes down to, okay, so what is it about the process that you like? And what is it specifically that you want to do? So I think that just me figuring out who I am, and I'm still figuring that out, and, and what I have to say connected me to these projects. Because I think, A, I'm a character actor, uh, so that's always been my thing, regardless of what people look at and see. That's not who I am. And what that, does that mean to you when you say? Because I always feel like every every part in a play is a character. Right. Exactly. So tell me what you mean by that. What I mean by that is, I take on each character as they come. I'm not looking for something that I can fit my personality to, because okay. I'm not even sure what my personality really is. Well, but what do you think it is? I don't know. What would your wife say? I, I, OCD. I, well, yeah. Um, uh, serious. Neurotic. Intense. Political. Seri political. Serious and not serious enough. I mean, all of those things, um, which is why, like, you know, people always think, you know, when they talk Zodiacs, they're like, oh, you're a Libra or you're an Aries. No, I'm a Virgo. And uh -huh. if you know that about me, then you right. understand, oh, that makes a whole lot of sense. But um, I think that I don't think of myself as a personality. There are people that I think of as personalities. There are people that are dynamic in themselves and and love the performance aspect of things. And so when they go on a stage, you're sort of coming to see them. I think if anyone is coming to see me in something, they're curious what I'm going to do because it's not going to be what I did the last time. Is there a part you've done where you're like, actually, this feels the most... Like, like me. me. Have you had that experience? And maybe that's in television or film and not well, on stage. I mean, there are aspects of everything of me in these roles. Otherwise, they wouldn't be sure. honest, right? right. Um, so I think every one of the roles has aspects of me, but not the whole of me. You know, uh, certainly like Thoroughly Modern Millie and Graydon, I am Trevor Graydon. But that's just a part of my silliness or my my sensibility about certain things. And, you know, with um, I, I can't lie now with Girl from the North Country, there's and, and you know, at, at this point in my life, there's mm -hmm. definitely, I don't know, some of the anger or uh, grief of that character. It, obviously, it's me. I mean, I can't lie. And that's a tough one because I got to go out there every night and we all do have to do what we do. Um, and it, it's – What do it, you mean? We I mean emotionally go, exhausting. Right, that show's there. emotionally exhausting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you really just got to do it. I don't know how you mark that kind of thing. I don't yeah. know how you – you just do it and then you find the pacing for going there on a regular basis. And um, your part, just opening up a whole thing of when you have a child well, with a disability. And, I mean and in it's this case, just a lot. Yeah. It's a lot. And, and, and protecting him. 
Yeah. And what and, we do for the people we love, all and, of that. Yeah, but also the idea of the guilt of when they released, do we feel better about it? I mean, are we, you know, like there's there's the guilt of are we happier when the issues are no longer around? I mean, that's a tough question. Mm-hmm. When you get through it. Uh-huh. You or know. get away with it. Now, if I'm also like, 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 let's say on Billions, I play this character of Dr. Gus, who is like bigger than life and, and he's huge and he's ridiculous and he's crazy. And yeah, there's a part of me that is that. I clearly, that's why they asked me to do it because yeah. I was able to just come in there and like, and that character is bigger than anything I've ever played on stage, which seems the antithesis of television. And yet that's who that is. That's what works. And every time I play that character, and we, I'm always sort of after, you know, after a take, I'm like, oh, come on, guys. Really? Yeah, do you need me to rein it in a <laughs> like little bit? Like a little bit, maybe? No? <laughs> They're okay. like, Mark, that's, I know. I always look at that, like, when the DP is laughing, I'm like, wow, then, then it's working. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know it. You know when you've got the whole crew <laughs> laughing. Because they could give a crap. Right. Just want to go but home. you know, yeah. like, you know, and that's the joy. And I mean, that's a, but those are also guys that are writing great stuff. But these like, are also shows that you get to shoot in New York. Uh, you get to sleep in your own bed. Like, that well, is incredible. Let me tell you. You can shower at home. No, but that's, but here's the deal. Or I can just shower over at the studio, right? <laughs> like, the, the great, th- like, for instance, with The Tick, when we shot season two of The Tick, which is releasing on the 5th of April, and you got to see it because it's awesome Can't wait. and it's a childhood dream to play a superhero You're that's been it. written and written with you and on you and it's By the awesome way, that's incredible it's, that doesn't look, happen to anybody no and it's great and it's ben edland who created the tick which is this awesome independent comic that i was into because i'm also a comic book geek so like i oh. was into that since i was in college i love the tick and so like to be uh, uh, it's you know, happening. Oh, it's so cool. It's happening. And it's a 25-minute bike ride from my apartment to the studio. So it's you couldn't ask for it to be more convenient. Yeah, it's awesome. There's so much stuff in New York now. Yeah. And I love I love new media and I love all of these cables and outlets and television has like exploded, right? And in a way that even Which is why on the days I'm not working, I'm like, wow, this is there's seven billion things yeah. and I'm not like it's it's flip the flip side of like oh my god there's so much the flip side is like I'm not on one of them right now no, it's but, kind of a crazy thing it can yeah, be great and hard it, it can be great and it can be hard but the, the truth is is that it's better than the opportunities are there and and obviously like look I mean you know I, I I've auditioned for plenty of things that I haven't gotten that that are here. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, of course. But when it's right for you. It's so great. And you know in this business, yes. it's like a thousand auditions, you get one, you're a success story. I'm a thousand auditions and I get the offer for something I didn't audition for. I really feel like almost everything I've shot in the last few years has been an offer. Yeah. And all the auditions I go on, that's my job. My job is to go on these auditions. Uh, I know. And then the job I get comes from someone I've worked with before. It's like, you want to come be on divorce? Yes, I do. So it's just, but both have to happen. I guess I have to do both. Yeah, but, you know, it's funny, too, because a lot of times you know how it works. Like, when it comes to the National Network stuff, I walk in and I'm like, I ain't right for this. I mean, and it's just like because I'm weird. I know that about myself. I, I, I And I have trained to be weird, and I have practiced many years in that weirdness. Yeah, you've got your 10,000 Malcolm I've Gladwell got my 10,000 hours. hours of practice of strangeness. Yes. 
You know, I've made a career of being a, 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 a questionable man or a questionable character doing questionable things. Mm -hmm. So there's nothing cut and dry about that. So the approach is never cut and dry. So when I go in for some of these things on the national network, I'm just like, you know, but I'm here. All right, I'm here, right? I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna count myself out of it. But, but if I were on the other side of the table, I'd be like. Mm. You know, and, and I say it every year. I'm just waiting for the outlets. I'm just waiting for the cable stuff because well, I know. you're on every one of them. Well, you've got a lot of I'm on a couple stuff. that yeah. are pretty gosh darn good. Yeah. And, and like and, and in truth, if I'm being really honest, the like the people that I've worked with are the people I've always wanted to work with. So that's why I mean when it's right, it matches up right. Mm -hmm. You know, like uh, I recur on Mindhunter on season one with David Fincher. One of my favorite directors, like ever. Yeah. And okay, if I'm not going to get that thing over here on the national network, but I get to work with David Fincher over here, Absolutely. that's where I want to be. Yeah. Clearly, I do. Yeah. Which is why one thing happens and the other doesn't. So, like, it's it's interesting how when things line up, they line up. You know, and yeah, sometimes there's an offer from a place, and then sometimes you know you're you're but you're putting out the hours on the sure. other end, and you're like. You know, all right, I'll burn my fuel for a while. So, I mean, there's so many things I could tangentially keep going with you on. But I do know that, or or if memory serves, I should say, mm -hmm. I feel like you were singing and you were singing fine and you got yourself onto the national tour of Bye Bye Birdie. This is going back to the very beginning wow, okay, yeah. of your life, which is also filmed. Right, so right, right, right. It, it's something that exists where you're singing on film and both things happen together. I don't remember which musical it was after that, but you, when you said earlier I wasn't a singer, you sang and faked it and faked your way into things. Yeah. But then you were like, oh, I am a singer. Well. So can you – I feel like I right. know this a little bit. Do you mind no, like, remembering this with me? No, see, look. You see, look. No, no, no. <laughs> she here. She here, Mark Rudish. No, Tell me the story. What I mean is. <laughs> what I mean to say. What I mean to say is. No. I, I Did felt, it make sense when I asked you? Yes. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. And okay. I'm going to be specific. Okay. Like, it, was, it was a couple of things that happened along the way. And this is what I mean by you can't plan. And you just sort of have to be – you have to be present to what's happening. You have to be aware of what's happening in a moment because if you're not, you miss it and then everything else is thrown off the rails. Well, how do you do that? You just got to be there. How do you be awake? You have to listen. Okay. And what that means is you got to get out of the novel that we all write inside of our heads. We're all novelists, right? And we're writing a book of fiction every minute of every day. But there's only an audience of one. No one else is reading that novel. Okay. I hope you're enjoying it because you're the only one buying it. So put it away. When you're when you're in an, in a moment with other people, put your book away. As, as my wife likes to say to me, put the phone down. Put the phone down. Okay. You know, and it's tough because you don't want to put the phone down. You don't want to put the book down. Well, it's very comfortable. Fits like a glove. It is, and you get to stay in that fiction. Right. 
But when you're out there, so here's my point. So when I was doing that national tour, Bye Bye Birdie, I got hired because of the way that I acted the role. I could sing well enough because I grew up with Elvis and I loved right. Elvis. And, and I could, could mimic. And I could mimic to a degree. Even though it wasn't really Elvis, there was just something naturally to me that had that rhythm in me. And Gene Sachs was directing it and Gene liked the way that I played the role. And that was what was important to them. Now, I was losing my voice at the end of every week when we were on tour. And my friend Susan Egan, who was playing Kim, really pulled me aside one day. And she's like, there is no reason for you to be losing your voice at the end of every week. You need to learn how to actually do this. If you're going to do this, it's an insult if you don't actually learn how to. She was right. She was right. And that's one of those moments that you have to listen to someone because in your, you know, they're right. Sure. So instead of defending and denying, you have to sort of take that in. And I was losing my voice. It was really hard. So when I got back to the city, I started to look for teachers and I started to train. And so through training, I was getting better and I was getting better. I still wasn't great, but I was at least getting a technique. I get beauty in the beast. Right. So I'm now Gaston. doing – I was guest on Beauty and the Beast. And I was singing fine. I was okay. I was okay. Mm -hmm. But then I was getting uh, – You got the part. Yeah, You were again, singing really well. Because of the way I acted the role. Yeah. You understood it. How to I understood it. that character and I understood how to play that character and not apologize for that character but not take myself too seriously within that character. Got it. Which is how you got to do it. Yeah. And as I'm playing that role – my dresser, Eric, who is an ex-bass that used to sing at the Met and City Opera, was dressing me one night. And he said to me, Mark, you have such a beautiful voice. And I was like, oh, thank you, dude. And he was like, it's too bad you only use about 25% of it. This is how – and he's doing this while he's lacing me totally. up to go on the stage. And if there's anything any one of us are sensitive about, it's our voice. Sure. Right? Because sure. it's an extension of – No one sings like us. Well, <laughs> and the thing is you resonate out. So yeah. you really are exposing yourself. And, of course, in my mind, you know, I wanted He's to fired. say a lot of things. <laughs> but fired after what came out of my mouth was, so what do I do? Mm. And that's what I mean. I could have said a lot of things. But instead of deny and push him away – I was like, what do I do? And he smiled at me and he gave me uh, a card to a guy named Alan Seal. And he said, you see him, who was his voice teacher. So, and this is totally true. I went and I saw Alan, who was this wonderful, he taught opera. And a lot of his students were in Europe, you know, doing. And so he was taking on a couple of music theater students because his studio, he had, he had a lot of people space. working. Yeah. So I went in and on the first day that I worked with him, because I was like, so I don't know if I'm a baritone, I'm a tenor, people tell me this, that. And he's like, well, you know, let's just hear your voice and then we'll figure that out. Like, let's not We'll label decide. you later. Right. Yeah. At the end of that first lesson that I had with him, I literally was like, I could not believe the sound that was coming out of my body because I just, no one had ever shown me sort of how to get out of the way of it. And at the end of it, he's like, okay, so I think you're a baritone. What baritone you are, I do not know, but I guess we'll find that one out. He said, when are you seeing me next? And I said, I don't know. You tell me. He's like, all right, come back in a week. And then he said to me, now look, apply some of this stuff if you want while you're performing because I know you're doing eight shows a week. And, you know, singing operatically is something that you just cannot do eight shows a week. Um, but he said, apply some of this as you go along. Don't kill yourself. 
you know, be good to yourself, but do what you can. And this is true. So that week, this was like on a Monday. And then as I was going through the week, because, you know, nobody ever listens to anyone else when you're doing a show eight shows a week, right? <laughs> not no. not at that point in right. the run. <laughs> but then, yeah. like, on Thursday, people start actually hearing what I'm doing. And people are like, dude, what's up? What is up? You know, Beth Fowler, my friend Beth Fowler comes Love into the her. dressing room and says, when did Alfred Drake show up? Like, I don't know. And I said, I'm, I just, I met this new voice teacher and she's like, oh my God, Mark, you sound like a different person. Right. Come the weekend, stage manager sits me down in my dressing room and says, so let's talk about this new voice. Right. Because this is not who we hired. And that's what he said. This is not the voice that got you hired. He said, are you okay? I said, I'm okay. Can you continue to do this? I said, I'm going to continue to do this. I said, because this is healthy. Like, I know this is healthy because I'm not tired in the way that I would be. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, I'm not going to lie. It sounds really good. That said, the, the guys are going to have to come back and hear it. And he said to me, all right, keep doing what you're doing. Meaning don't go back <clears throat> to. He said, keep doing what you're yeah, doing. Move forward. And then he's had the guys come back to hear me. Because he's like, it's almost like we have a new cast member. So you guys, I just want you to hear him. You know, and they all came back and they were sort of like, wow, that's really different. But then everybody was like, but it sounds really good. And if you can keep doing it, go ahead. So I'm very happy about that. And then like through Alan and then working with him for 10 years, suddenly I just learned, you know, again, I, I just was learning on the fly. I was learning a whole new technique and I was learning, you know, operatic technique on the fly while I'm working eight shows a week. And that just sort of really changed everything. Because and to this day, is that how you – are the things that you learned with him the things you do before a show? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's been a long time since I've had a voice lesson. Yeah. But, I mean, again, 10,000 hours of practice. So, like, even in myself, like, it's funny. I, 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 I haven't been singing very much. You know, I mean, after I did 9 to 5, I just decided I was done with musicals for a while. So all I was doing was plays. Mm -hmm. So, like, I just was – I didn't want to sing. Um, but then I was do you know, the only singing I was actually doing was modern opera. So but like you do concerts. I mean you would do Yeah, stuff but not around. as much as you might think. Okay. Because again, I'm not like one of those personalities. I I, right. I, I it's different for me. Um there's so got to be a reason. For someone asking you to do it for charity, but you're right. not creating shows for right. yourself. Well, and I have one. Yeah. Like honestly, next week, Shannon and I, I'm, you know, I'm Playbill does these Playbill cruises, yeah. you know, which are amazing. And, Where are you going to get to go? Um, the south, uh, the southern Provence of France, on the Rhone. I will sing. For the southern, for, I will oh, yeah. sing in Provence. Yeah. I will sing in Provence, and and in, and frankly, I I'm, mind it and, so much. and I'm probably going to sing in in French yeah. because I'm like, hey, you know, we're going to do like a, a a public concert for one of the towns, oh, maybe in Lyon or something like maybe. that, and I'm like, maybe I'm going to sing in French because, like, come on, yeah, but like. But it is fewer and far, but not at all. But you will learn these songs. Well, I mean, I've again just training. I learn certain things like Italian. I'm better at German. I'm better at, um, and I think German just because you know that's very close to English. Um, and Yiddish. And Yiddish for sure. Oh gosh, Yiddish. Yiddish is harder than it. Yiddish isn't easy. You know, also because just like well, there's a whole other it. thing. I see the quote. Yiddish isn't easy. Mark Kudish. We're done here. I've got my marketing for All this right. episode. No, but you know, it's tough it language, man. It well, it's not. There's nothing that we say that sounds like it. 
No. There's nothing to hold on to. But it made a – like I did this opera. I did this new opera uh, two years ago now. Uh, I was in Amsterdam for a couple of months and the Dutch – you like – then I go, oh, I get Yiddish now. Like I get it better because listening to the Dutch speak, it's tough. It's a tough language, man. Yeah. Like even my German friends that were in the show are like, you know. Mark. Dutch, Dutch is a very <laughs> – it's it's a difficult, ugly Mark, language. But like it's a tough language. But then when you hear it, it's so like Yiddish. And it makes sense because a lot of, you know, the Jewish population – there was a huge Jewish population in Amsterdam. So – you know, it's this Germanic language that has all of these other flavors to it. And there's a huge difference between European Yiddish and American standard Yiddish. Um, I know this is like what a tangent that no, is. No, right? but I just saw the fiddler in Yiddish and I was like, this is a beautiful, this is a beautiful thing. It is a very beautiful thing. It's gorgeous. And, you know, I mean... When I was a kid, my grandfather, when he was around, would speak Yiddish because he was like very orthodox and, you know, from uh, uh, – Orthodoxia. (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, I mean they grow up like really speak – because, you know, Yiddish is – it's Ashkenazi. I mean it's very European, you know, and and when the state of Israel was originally – created, you know, the last thing they wanted to speak was Yiddish because they felt like that that was the language of the downtrodden and they wanted to be a new people and they wanted to resurrect Hebrew, which was a dead language. Right. And the whole thing with that translation of the Yiddish, you know, originally it... For the fiddler. For the fiddler, the guy that translated it originally translated it into Hebrew and it was done in Israel. Okay. And then he did a translation immediately following that in Yiddish for Israel as well. Okay. And it didn't go over as well because no one – they were like Yiddish. Yiddish is dead to us now. Yeah. Do you know? And like we're assimilated. Or or no. Or or Yiddish stands for all of those years of tragedy. All of, of persecution. That, of persecution. Yeah, and that so was painful. the language of the shtetl mm-hmm. and that's not what Israel is. Mm-hmm. So, and they wanted to speak Hebrew and that's what they wanted. We don't right. want Yiddish. The we language want of our Hebrew. survival, not of our Exactly. Demise. And it's interesting because Yiddish is the language of Fiddler because Fiddler is – the shtetl. So and that's why it was so exciting. Come on. It was so exciting. Um, all right, Mark. I am uh I am so lucky that you came in today. Mm. I <laughs> that's lucky. Mm. <laughs> I don't know that I would have had this time with you. Otherwise, I have in some strange way taken such pride in watching your journey since I first met you <laughs> and to kind of see the arc and uh, of, of all of us in different yeah. ways. But to be in the presence of someone who was there at my beginning, um, it's just an incredible feeling. No, it's weird, right? Yeah. I, I mean, because like we're all in it together, like yeah. no matter what, like we're all, we're all, it's all this, it, we're all doing it together. Thank you, Mark Kudish, for You're coming welcome. on. All right. If you want more information about my guests, go to the website, littleknownfactspodcast.com.
I also wanted to tell you that there is now a new addition to the website. It is a button that says Contributions. This podcast is a true labor of love, and I really, really want to keep doing it for a long time. So if you like listening as much as I love to do it, please feel free to contribute. It would mean the world to me. Also, on Twitter, you can find me at Alana Levine. Instagram is Little Known Facts Podcast. And on Facebook, Little Known Facts Podcast. You can also feel free to rate and review the show on the iTunes show page. This podcast is recorded at Hangar Studios in New York City. Do you believe in stories? I know I do. Do you feel like there is more to your story? Personally, I feel like there's more to every story. And I got some good news. There's this great company called The Pocket Media Group, and they can help you find the more in your story and tell it so it connects to the people you most want to reach. They specialize in video, photography, writing, design, branding, and strategy, all the pieces you need to start something new or polish up something old. And they understand that story, whether it's a photograph, a video, or words on a page, powerfully connects people and ideas. So whether you're a not-for-profit, a company, or just good old you with an idea, whatever your story, mission, or message, reach out to the people at The Pocket Media Group at www.thepocketmediagroup.com and let them help you start telling your story. Because look, we know there is definitely more to your story.